One of the most helpful things I've learned is that I'm not alone. You're not alone. And as we open up to the right people, we'll see our communities grow bigger and stronger. If you find this video helpful, please support us by liking and subscribing. And if you know someone this video can help, please pass it their way. My mission is to help make the world a safer place by sharing with you the stories that saved me. I wanna talk about your case to all the doctors. You have been burned very badly and we have done a lot of special work to get you better. The doctors here are all young. They learn how to be good doctors by listening to older doctors like me. If you permit me, I can teach them a lot today by presenting your case. However, you would have to take off all your clothes so I can show them. We would drape you with a cloth when possible. Would you do it? Could you help them learn how to help other burned children? Oh. <laughs> what happened? Uh, when I was four years old, I was on vac vacation with my family and it was the first night on vacation. We were staying in a little cabin on a lake and it was dinner time. My mother decided it was time to start um, cooking. So she went around the cabin and she looked for something that she thought was lighter fluid. And with me standing right next to her, she poured this lighter fluid on coals and tried to light it and it didn't light. So she took that can that actually turned out to be a highly flammable household solvent poured it again and at that point there was this huge explosion of flame that enveloped me and my mother immediately and blocked off any exit off the porch. So my mother, um, a, she was a brilliant woman, she was very gifted, she was a concert pianist, but she should not have been a mother. I think is, is how, is basically the way to, to, to summarize my mother. My mother took one look at that situation and realized that the only way to save herself was to run through the wall of flame and right down into the lake. And that's what she did, but she left me in that fire. Um, my father was on the other side of the porch and he could just kind of see me through the wall of flame and he, he ran around and he, he was able to kind of reach me because he was just tall enough and I was just small enough to fit through the holes in the fence. He pulled me down, threw me into the lake. And at the end of all that, which was like 90 seconds, I was burned 65% um, third degree in 1967. I lost my lip, my chin, my neck, my arms were fused to my side. And in 1967, it was pretty, pretty rare to survive that, um, but it was an ordeal. That's sort of just the beginning of it, honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This book, as I, I read and listened simultaneously to it, um, and to me, I had to, I had to step away yeah. quite a few times because of. Uh, how disgusting 
the whole process was mm -hmm, for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Listening to how they treated burn victims back mm -hmm, then. Mm -hmm. um, and we could get into that, but I, I really want to ask you, why did your mom leave you there? Mm. My mom would never think that that was an appropriate question, the way you just phrased it. Why did she leave me there? I think that's an appropriate question. But to my mother, she would say, she was on fire, she saved herself, anyone would do that. Um, and she would be offended that anyone would dare to question that, including me. Um, she thought that that was just human nature and she was never even sorry. My mother was just not a maternal person, really, is what it comes down to. Um, she was not someone who uh, was protective of her children. She loved me and my brother um, as best she could, but every single time, if it came down to it between something we needed or something she needed, she picked herself 100% of the time. I remember you said in this, is like your, your dad was like, save her, save her, like when yeah, this was yeah. happening and she's just, she's like, I, she's like, I'm trying to save myself. Yes. Uh, it, it felt, you said it was 90 seconds, but it, the, <laughs> the story feels like it was like a five minute yeah. thing that was happening while you were in that fire with the whole argument between them to try to save you. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of other parts of this book where she shows exactly how you're describing her from your point of view? Yes, yeah. Do you mind getting into that? Sure. Um, can you tell me a little bit more what you're asking? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing that came to mind, uh, I'm, I'm hesitating because I, I, it's very deep, it is the notes that you found your mom was a psychologist? Psychiatrist? Yes, psychologist, psychologist yes. Um, your brother mm. committed suicide. Yes. And you said that you found notes yes. when he was 11. Like his, his nine, I think. Nine, oh, nine, I'm sorry, nine. Yep. Mm -hmm. Of him very much saying he was going to kill himself. Yes. And, and that it, the, the, the home was very toxic place and I just like I through the whole entire book I wondered like why your mom didn't how your mom didn't pick up on that being in the profession that she was in yes right so all of that is is 100% true um, my mother was a psychologist I don't know what kind of a psychologist she was but she definitely was one. Um, and my brother, my brother Mark Emil Geer, was five years older than me. And um, the story goes in the family that he was always depressed. And what I think is that he was always um, aware <laughs> of the family dynamic that we were in. 
And the family dynamic that we were in, my brother and I, is that we had these really fun, musically gifted, incredibly smart parents who could put on a great time, uh, were the life of the party, and who had no business having children. Uh, not that they weren't smart people or people that meant well, but they were not able to put their children first. And I think that's what you need to be able to do as a parent. Um, I think you need to be able to do that a lot for like decades, is be able to put your own needs kind of secondary and put your children's first. Not 100% of the time, but most of the time. And my parents kind of did it virtually none of the time. Yeah. And so as a result, um, my brother was a very neglected person and I was a very neglected child. And my brother felt that and he knew it. And so yes, there were um, school papers that he wrote where he wrote, you know, someday, literally he wrote, someday I would like to kill myself. And my brother was never taken to therapy. Uh, my brother was more or less left to do whatever he wanted to do. He was not raised. He was not held. He was not guided. And, um, you know, he just flew off and plummeted to the earth like Icarus. You know, he just couldn't handle his own sadness and he had no barriers around him to help him and he took his life when he was 19. And he <clears throat> he looked so successful on the surface, right? He, he, he plummeted off of a building at MIT yes. where he was attending and got to early in life. Yes, yeah. So, um, and, and yes, so my brother Mark and this is, this really gets to two parts of, of what I think is the most important things that I can share. My brother Mark was 19 years old when he died. He graduated high school when he was 17, a year ahead, with virtually perfect SAT scores, the smartest person I've ever known. And if you knew anybody who knew him, they will all say the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Got into MIT early as a physics major um, also, he was a brilliant musician and a really kind person, and like he had it all going for him. But he was not resilient. And I was the ugliest, most disfigured, and sort of disgusting looking child you'd ever seen for quite some time. I was bullied, I was neglected, I was picked on. I was undateable, and I am resilient, and I'm here having a great life decades later. And so that is the part that is one of the things that I wanted to really convey in this book is that, you know, you don't really know how things are going to turn out for people, and you can be this incredibly unfortunate child and make it. And you can also be the person who seems like they've got it all together and not make it. And we need to look out for those people and take care of them, help them. 
sun will surface it. Oof. Yeah. No. Your brother meant everything to you. Yes. He was. The way it reads is, uh, in your book is that he was your number one fan. Mm -hmm. He was. He. He was. Your. I don't want to say savior, but like. He. The way I put it, Jay, is he was my best parent. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And he was. I mean, he was only five years older, yeah. but you know, I mean, older siblings can be the parents sometime. And he absolutely stepped in and was all the things that my parents couldn't be. He was a really good listener and he understood me and he um, was really interested in helping me and yeah. guiding me and teaching me. Yeah. Yeah. He was... He, he was an incredible person. How did his death affect you? Um, yes, yeah, so Mark's death was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I think, you know, most people would think, well, definitely the worst thing that ever happened to me would be the fire. But no, um, it was losing him. And it affected me in many ways. Um, I really immediately was like, oh, I got to get my shit, to, <laughs> get myself together here. And I was 14. I was like, I, I, I need to really um, pull myself together. I, um, my initial reaction was that I wanted to kill myself too. But I, I, my mother did take me to therapy at that point, and um, I didn't do that. Uh, I think in the long run, my brother's death has helped me with the clients that I work with, because I'm a psychologist, you know, we haven't really talked about that, but I am, and I think I'm really good at listening to people who are in despair, and, um helping them get through one day and then the next. And I think when I talk to people about the fact that they need, it's not their turn to die and that they're needed here, even if I'm not sharing my story, which I'm not, not when I'm working with a client, um, I think it gives me a, I think people can hear I really mean it. Yeah. Yeah. If you could give advice to people who I just want to mention he wasn't the only suicide in your life. Yeah. Like, was he was the first, but not the only of, yeah. of, a, of a, quite Four. a few, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people out there who think it's, who struggle with suicidal yeah. ideation. Yeah. What could you tell those people? That... The idea, most people who are killing themselves or thinking about killing themselves are thinking that it doesn't matter if they're here. Maybe no one would care that much either way. And even worse, that their death would be a relief to people. Yeah. And so what I would say is that those things are not true. Those are symptoms. 
It's symptoms of depression. Those thoughts are not, they're not real thoughts, they're symptoms. And that um, people never actually get over the, the death of a loved one to suicide. You know, my brother has been dead for, I don't know, it's, we're, I don't know how many years, it's 50 something years now, Maybe, no, not quite. 46 years, my brother has been dead, and I am still not over his suicide. Yeah. And I'm entirely sure that if Mark knew that his death was going to be causing me such great pain, 46 years later, he would never have jumped off that building. Yeah. I'm sure. Because well, he, he was loved a, you. He loved yeah. me tremendously. And it's caused so much pain to all of these people who loved him. It's not just me. We all still miss him. My brother was one of the most loving people you will ever meet on this planet. If he knew his death was going to cause that much pain, I promise you he wouldn't have done it. So the idea that it doesn't matter, that our, our, our death doesn't matter, or that it would be a relief, it's, it's not true. It's exactly the opposite. And that... The other thing I would say to people is that um, the pain of depression and suicidal thinking can come and go. It feel, and when you're in it, it feels like it will never end. But it comes and it goes. And I have worked with many people who a month later are like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. So it's um, the idea that it will always be this bad is also a symptom. Yeah. It's not real. Um, and you know, it, it's just not your time to go. You'll go when you go. That's what I would say. Thank you. Mm. What can you say to those people who have people in their lives? Um, <clears throat> So I, I, I deal with uh, severe depression. And actually, I guess I have a different question. I have a hard time telling people about my severe depression because I don't want to burden them. Mm -hmm. But I also know that reaching out is, is what needs to happen. And if, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I, I do go through therapy for it, but also reaching out to people who love me. Yes. I don't want to scare them. I don't want to. I don't want to burden them with my shit. Uh, I do. I've, I've I've learned how to do it. And I I learned that it it is uh, the best thing for me and for also to keep them in the loop. Um, but yeah, what what can you? Because you're a professional, I don't, you know. I, what can you say to to people who are depressed and are are bottling it in. Mm. Uh, what advice can you give to them? Mm. Well, I'm a big believer in therapy. I mean, I'm a psychologist myself, and uh, I've been in therapy a lot myself, so I've been on both ends of that. I'm a big believer in therapy, both as someone who has been helped by it and as someone who helps other people. So. What I would say first is if you're bottling that up, maybe the first step 
is finding a therapist that you can possibly feel safe with who can guide you through that process. Because you're absolutely right, Jay. I mean, like, holding that to yourself only makes it worse. And the people who love you want to know. Mm -hmm. I want, to, if somebody I love is in the severe depression, I want to know. I mean, I might not be able to do that much, but I would give them love and tell them I love them and be there for them as best I could. And that is huge, actually. So, um, but it, again, it is a symptom of depression, social withdrawal, and not wanting to talk to people and, and, and withdrawing into yourself. That, again, is a symptom. Yeah. yeah. And when you're on the receiving end of that, when you are the person that's hearing <clears throat> from your loved one, I'm depressed and I want to kill myself. That's hard to hear. Yes. That's hard to hear as, as the person who now has to hold that vulnerable space. Yeah. And how, how do we hold that? I know everyone's different, right? So you can't just, it's not the same response to every single person. But what's a good general way to hold that vulnerability when someone gives you that news? Yeah. Well, I mean, first we need to talk about basic safety. Okay. Because if a person is saying they want to kill themselves, it's, do they need to go to the hospital? Okay. Right. I mean, that's the first thing. Are you able to keep yourself safe? Are you, do you have a plan? Are you, are you truly in danger? In which case, you need to be in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And what's the most gentle way to, to do that to somebody? Because you... It, you know, if someone says, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, it can overwhelm that person who's, who's trying to be vulnerable. Right. And they can be like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm never going to talk to you again. Yes. Many times when you say that to someone, they're like, I'm, I am safe for now. I'm okay for now. Okay. But I'm just saying, sometimes that is, I, I don't want to be cavalier about this. Uh -huh, like, sometimes uh -huh. that's the answer. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, if a person's like, no, I'm feeling that way, but I'm not going to do it. I'm, I just want to tell you how bad I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Then I think there's a whole other conversation to be had about um, telling someone that you love them and that you want so much for them to be okay and that they're losing them would destroy you. And, you know, helping a person know that um, how how much it matters that they stay alive to you. Yeah. My brother, bless his heart, actually went around telling quite a few people he wanted to kill himself. Now I want to say in everybody's defense, including mine, that this was in 1977. And so I don't, I think, you know, people were just not as aware as we are now. Not that we're so aware now, but we're a lot less aware then. <laughs> and, um, you know, nobody said, uh, as far as I know, nobody said anything to him that would help him, including me. My brother said to me, someday I'm going to kill myself. You know that. You know that someday I'm going to kill myself. He said to me, he was 19, I was 14, and I adored him. And I would have never questioned my brother on anything as long as he, I, I, whatever he said was sacrosanct to me. So my brother said that to me, I was 14, and I said, 
I know. And what I wish I had said is, no, you can't kill yourself. I need you. I love you. I'll never get over it. What do you need? I was 14, right? I was a kid. I didn't know to say those things. I didn't even know them at the time. I, you know what I mean? I didn't know anything. But that's what he needed to hear, I'm sure. You can't. I need you here. We'll find another way. So on top of all the shit life will throw at you, you typically, <laughs> like a normal person, mm -hmm. uh, you were severely third degree burned, two thirds of your body yes. had to be um, grafted, grafted and rebuilt. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. When you were, this happened when you were four, <sighs> you were raised by parents who it seemed like there was mental illnesses and mm -hmm. a lot of things going on there. Um, a lot of non-parenting, a lot of neglect. Dealing with yeah, this, the, the fear of never being able to find love yeah. because of how mean kids are mm -hmm. and all those mean things that boys said to you um, all of the suicides how do you stay resilient <laughs> it's, it's mm -hmm. just yeah how uh, mm -hmm. right so You know, resilience is something that we didn't used to understand or know. It used to be sort of this mystery, this mystery that some people seemed to have and other people didn't, and we didn't really understand why. Um, and that is absolutely one of the questions that made me want to become a psychologist, is like how to help people survive and thrive as opposed to we lose them, like my, my brother. And we know a lot more about resilience now um, and there's a lot of it that's it's in the mindset now there's some things about resilience like there's genetic components we can't control that and there's economic components in that if you have more money you can you know live in a safer neighborhood and send your kids to better schools and afford a good psychologist and stuff like that, right? <laughs> but there is a mindset to resilience that is independent of all those things. And the mindset is the same in every country that we've studied it, across all socioeconomic and racial stuff, like it's the same mindset. And so there's a mnemonic for that, and I'll share it with you. And it's, what's well, my mnemonic, but it's called goals plus M&M. So the G in goals stands for gratitude, Resilient people, generally speaking, are able to notice what they have as opposed to what they don't have. I mean, they still notice what they don't have. But they can see what they have. They mm -hmm. can see the blessings around them mm -hmm. and get strength from those. Mm -hmm. So gratitude, 
optimism, mm -hmm. you know, the ability to imagine that things can turn out okay, active coping, that's the A in goals, active coping. So that's the ability to have a problem and say like, well, what can I do to help myself? Um, and the, if you notice the optimism and the act of coping, they go together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if, you, if you can't imagine that things can turn out okay, you're not going to try to help yourself, uh -huh. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So gratitude, optimism, act of coping. The L in goal stands for love. Resilient people have love in their lives. I think it's really important to notice that and we, this is like we're studying kids who were like in foster care and stuff. Maybe they didn't have a loving mother or father, but they had a loving foster mother or they had a loving grandmother or a teacher or a neighbor or a brother or, okay? So resilient people are loved, not necessarily by the people they think should love them sometimes, but they have, they're loved. Mm. Um, the S in goals is for social skills. Brazilian mm -hmm. people are good with people. Mm -hmm. They they can make relationships and keep them and mm -hmm. cherish them. So then, then you have people who are helping them, right? Mm -hmm. And the M and M goals plus M and M stands for meaning making. So resilient people are people who go through trauma and say, um, "What can I learn from this? Or what good can I make out of this? Or how can I help people from this? Like what you are doing." That's meaning making. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the resilient mindset. And um, the optimistic thing about that resilient mindset is that we can all develop those skills. There's nothing about that that has to be inborn. You might naturally be more sunnier or whatever, but you can get more optimistic. Like these are skills you can learn mm -hmm. in therapy or even just on your own. Mm -hmm. They're skills that you can learn. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that is a super long answer to how do I think I made it from where I was to where I am now? Because yeah. I have a beautiful life. You do. I, I really do. I'm, I have a wonderful husband. I have two extraordinary children I'm a psychologist I speak around the country like yeah. I'm gonna give a TED talk like I have a great life yeah and I at some point you would have met me and thought oh my god that poor kid mm -hmm. and how I think I got there is all the stuff I just said yeah. I I'm grateful for what I have I'm an optimistic person I'm a pretty good problem solver <laughs> I have people who love me not my mother and father so much I mean they love me but eh. Mm. But I had other people who love me, right? And yeah. I know how to make a friend. And yeah. I know how to take what I've been through and say, well, how can I help other people with this? Yeah. And that's the resilient mindset. Yeah. And we can all get better at that. Yeah. Every single one of us. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I just, I want to point out how genuine all of this wonderfulness that's happening. Like, I, I, I was blessed to be able to see you and your family mm -hmm. and and how you guys are like your 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 daughters and your husband and it's so loving so mm -hmm. genuinely mm -hmm. loving mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and so it's true like having been through all of that and 
you don't learn loving skills <laughs> when you're little from having you know what I mean like you, yeah. like you said you had like it, it wasn't like it wasn't like my parents taught me how to be loving you know mm -hmm. you had to like find out how to do that mm -hmm. you, you know you're uh, sorry not that you could not learn it but like when you're little it's not that it wasn't like naturally taught to you right um, exactly what you said you, you can learn it from other uh, people from other people yeah uh, yeah I think a lot of people feel like if you didn't have good parents you're sunk uh, and what I would say is that if you didn't have good parents that's a problem and it's unfortunate, and it might even be a tragedy. But are you sunk? No. Because mm -mm. there's more than two people in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you said it could be a, a teacher or somebody. I remember yeah. I decided to start chasing love. And I'm not talking about like romantic relationships. I'm just I'm talking about love um, from a woman at my church. Mm -hmm. I remember being about 13 and she was just the kindest most wonderful thing right I bet she beamed pure. it out yeah. right yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. pure mm -hmm. and I was like that's what love is and that's what I want to be yeah and I remember like as a young child I was like that is well, I need the world to realize, like, there's this. Yeah, there's, right. This is, this is a real thing. Yeah. Right. And so there are two things I want to say to you in, in, to that story. One is that um, you, were, you were open enough and, and um, aware enough to spot it. <laughs> so good, for, good on you. Thank you. And the other is that I bet that woman has no idea that she had such a positive impact on you. And that's another thing that I try to make the point of every time I have the chance to speak to people is that if we are in a place that we are healthy enough and well enough um, that I, we can do so much for other people and I don't mean that you have to like adopt them or whatever, but just by being kind and um, open and having um, that warm spirit, you have no idea how many people you can touch in the course of a week like that, right? And that woman has no idea, I'm sure, <laughs> that she modeled love to you yeah. in a lifelong way, yeah. but she did, yeah. and I think we can all be that person for other, well, maybe not all of us. Most of us <laughs> can be that person yeah. for someone else if, when we're healthy and well. Yeah, but yeah. we have to get healthy and well first. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for talking to oh, me. Oh, thank you for having me, it was my honor. Thank you. Mm -hmm.